Please remain standing as we uh, look this morning at a passage of Scripture that uh, I, I promise is probably not one of uh, your, your most favorite, most familiar passages. It's kind of an obscure passage. It's found in the 34th chapter of Exodus. But I think if we take the time to look at it, there's something God wants us to know. I invite you to read together. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. As I have commanded you, do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. Celebrate the festival of weeks and the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you, and enlarge your territory. And no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. You may be seated. We have an outline that's uh, provided for you as we look at God's word together. You know, we live in a PC culture, and uh, therefore you have to be real careful these days uh, how you talk and what you say about folks. Uh, a lot of political correctness has to do with gender. You've got to be real careful about uh, what you say about women or what you say about men because uh, there, there's kind of a move in, in culture nowadays to, to, distinguish, to, to uh, uh, do away with a whole lot of distinctions about differences. And we want to believe that men and women are the same. We think alike. We act alike. We have all the same interests. Uh, you and I know that's not true, but we, you know, we're kind of moving in that direction. Uh, You've got to be careful what you say in a PC culture. A lot of it has to do with gender. We're in a national debate right now about gender-neutral bathrooms. I understand there's a retailer, I don't know if they've actually done this or not, a retailer who's with their toy department decided they're not going to have a boy's aisle and a girl's aisle because they don't want to play in those gender biases. They're just going to have a toy aisle, and, and boys and girls can decide whatever toys they want to play with. This is Father's Day. Last month we celebrated Mother's Day. I don't know, I'm kind of afraid. I hope we don't ever get to a point where, where those are considered discriminatory and there might be some who suggest, we, we don't need to have a Father's Day or a Mother's Day. Let's just have a Parent's Day. I hope we don't do that because a mother and a father each bring unique contributions and responsibilities to the family. The title of this morning's message might be viewed by some as not politically correct. I want to try to explain that. Needed. Men of God. Now, some folks might say, what do you mean, men of God? You saying the men of God are more important than women of God? No, I'm not saying that at all. Why don't you just say needed, people of God? Why do you have to talk about men of God? Well, if you give me just a second, relax. I'm going to share with you why I'm specifically talking about why we need men of God. Think about this. If I told you, if I stood up here and I told you men are the reason for most of the problems that we face in this nation and in this world, I'd get a lot of amens about that. <laughs> uh, there'd be folks out there who would say, yeah, men are, men are horrible. And if I made that statement that men are the reason for most of the problems facing the world today, I probably wouldn't be accused of being sexist. However, what if I stood up here and said, men 
are the solution to the problems facing the world today and our nation today. I'd probably catch a lot of grief. I'd, I'd be called chauvinistic. People would say, what century are you in, Stuart? What do you mean men are the solution to the problems of the world? Let me tell you, I believe it with all my heart, and I believe that Scripture and history confirm this. So let me say something that I hope won't make you angry, but I believe it's true. Men are the reason for a lot of the problems we have in this world today. Therefore, because of that, it is men who can be the solution to many of the problems that we face in the world today. And the solution to a lot of the problems lies at the feet of men. Most of the violent crime in this nation, it's not committed by women, it's created by men. Most of the people who abandon, about hundreds of thousands, abandon their spouse and their children and their family, it's not women, it's men. For the most part, it's not women in our culture, that are guilty of assaulting and abusing men, it's men that are committing those acts. You know, think about terrorism. Sadly, we're beginning to see some women even engaging in those activities, but by far, the the people that are planning and executing and implementing those horrific acts of hatred and violence against humanity are men. Just can't get around it. That's why, see, when you look at the social, moral ills in this nation and in this world, almost without exception, men are at the center of it. That's why I'm convinced that we desperately need, if our nation is to be a nation after God's own heart and a nation that realizes its potential, is that we need, more than ever, men of God. Now, this text that we looked at a moment ago, like I said, it's not the most familiar uh, passage, but I think something significant is being suggested here. Just a little bit of background. The Israelites have escaped bondage, slavery in Egypt, where they've been for generations. Now, they're, they're in the wilderness. They're wandering those 40 years in the desert. That, at that period of time that we call the Exodus. They're trying to build a nation. They're trying to get some order into chaos and to bring some uh, boundaries, some laws, some effective way to s- establish a nation. God identifies Moses as the leader, and so God calls Moses to go up to Mount Sinai. You remember the story. Moses is up there in the burning bush. God appears to him. God speaks. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and he says, all right, here, here's the foundational principles from which you are to order this new nation. Moses takes the commandments back down. Uh, they've gotten tired of waiting on Moses. They've already erected a golden calf and started worshiping it. Moses is furious. He throws the tablets down into a hundred. They crash into a hundred pieces. God still wants to bring order and chaos, order out of their chaos, and so Moses he invites Moses again to go up to the mountain. This time Moses spends, the Bible tells us, 40 more days, weeks, in solitude with God, listening to God, seeking to know God's will. And it's in that experience, that time of solitude with God, that God instructs Moses to institute certain things that 
will help establish the nation, keep it strong, keep it devoted to the Lord. Here's what he tells Moses to do. I want to make sure that the people keep three festivals. The festival of the unleavened bread, which would become the Passover. The festival of weeks, which would become our Pentecost. And the festival of the tabernacles. We celebrated the, the harvest. And then we see something very interesting that might get overlooked. In verse 23, look at it. The scripture says, God speaking to Moses, three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. Now, this is very significant. You know, a lot of times, Bible translations today, in an effort to be inclusive, uh, will find those places in the Bible that refer to men, and it's obvious that the, that, the, that the reference is meant to be generic. And they've upgraded it, made it modernized to say men and women. A lot of times in Scripture where the Scripture's original text will refer to brothers, and we'll change that and not in any way violating the intent of the passage, we'll say brothers and sisters, just to be more inclusive. That works most of the time. But to do that here would be to misunderstand the purpose of the text. None of the translations of the Bible take this passage and take the word men and change it in any way. Well, I'll take that back. One modern translation, instead of men, says males. So that makes it even more specific. In other words, when the Bible here talks, says men, it means men. God's instructing that for the nation to, to flourish, for the nation to be faithful, he commands that men appear regularly before him. Now, why is that? Is that because God loves men more than women? Of course not. Is that because men are more important in God's plan than women? Of course not. Here's what I think. I think he singles out men because God knew men. God knew their, their temperament. God knew their attitudes. God knew their physical attributes. God knew that men, given who they are, how they think, would either be the biggest problem in establishing a nation or they would be means for the greatest solution to bring order out of chaos. And therefore, he says, I want the men three times a year to come. God knew that the nation, that, that men would either destroy this new thing God was trying to do, or that men would be able to help be a part of building and being a solution for what God, for God's purpose in the world. You see, Requiring men to present themselves to him in this way is not suggesting that men are better. It's because God knows the potential of men to do either great good or great evil. And when, when men of God were devoted to God, then the nation would thrive. If the men of God, if the men of Israel were indifferent, were disobedient to God, the nation didn't stand a chance. So you see, I believe that his command for the men to appear three times is not 
indicative of any superiority. It's indicative of their spiritual vulnerability. Listen, you got, you got two kids. One of them's always getting in trouble. One of them's mischievous. Which one are you going to ask if you're away for a while? Which one are you going to ask to check in more often? It's the one that's prone to, to stray. I don't think God has to worry about the women of God. He knew they were going to be faithful. He knew they were going to be obedient. He knew they were going to be devoted. It's the men. It's going to take men three times. Stop what you're doing. Come before me. I need for you to be men of God. Now, I believe that 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 God is still the way God functions. I believe that this nation needs, if we're to be the nation that we have the potential to be, needs men of God. Because we're far too often the source of the biggest problems. We need men who submit themselves to God's rule. We need men who are willing to follow God's direction for their life. We need men who realize that pursuing the heart of God is the greatest goal that they could possibly adhere to. We need men of God who who will reflect godly values in the workplace, in their homes, and in their marriages. And the reason for so many of the problems, let's be honest, the reason for so many of the problems that we face as a nation and as a world are because not enough men are living up to that responsibility. Now, there's a lot of areas we could talk about where we need men of God. We could talk about in, in the, uh, the work environment. We could talk about uh, in social life. We could talk about in the sports arena. But this is Father's Day, so let's focus in on the, the most important arena of all where we need today men of God, and that's in the home, in relationship with our children, and if we're married with our wife. What do men of God look like? Men of God respect women. They, they know that women are not objects to be used or abused, but they are precious creations, daughters of God who deserve the highest degree of respect we can possibly give them. Men of God honor women. They know that, that women uh, are a special creation of God and deserve all the honor that we can give them. Chivalry. It's not as popular as it used to be, is it? Chivalry is not necessarily a Christian virtue, but men of God need to lead the way when it comes to this. You know, chivalry, like I said, as a social code, is not very popular today. Um, there are a lot of folks, especially some women, that you know are, will get insulted if a man opens the door for him, or if a man offers to uh, carry a heavy package. It's kind of difficult to know how to be a man these days because you don't know what's right, what's wrong, what the rules are. Chivalry has, has been kind of fallen on some hard times because, unfortunately, uh, it's seen as suggesting that women are somehow inferior and can't open doors for themselves or can't do anything for themselves. Ironically, chivalry and practices of chivalry were never, historically, you can check this out, never about putting women down as weaker as some feminists choose 
to suggest. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. You're out of the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, life was kind of barbaric. Society realized that men, given the way men think, given the way men act, given some of the physical attributes that men have, if there was not some code of ethic that defined appropriate behavior and restraint, men could be a great danger to women. And so it it actually came about as a process uh, of restraining men to show kindness and compassion and respect. Recently, a John Hopkins professor wrote this. Speaking of chivalry, he says, it was a form of preferential treatment that men once accorded to women generations ago. Inspired by the sense that there was something special about women, that they deserve an added respect, and that not doing so was uncouth, cowardly, and even despicable. The story is told about Samuel Proctor, who for years was the pastor at the Halem excuse me, the Harlem Baptist Church. This happened, I think, back in the mid-70s, maybe mid-80s, and he got on an elevator, and a young woman got on the elevator with him, and he tipped his hat. He's one of those men who used to wear hats. He tipped his hat. Well, the woman was kind of indignant about it. She said, what's that supposed to mean? She looked at him, and she, he said, Madam, By tipping my hat, I was telling you several things. That I would not harm you in any way. That if someone came into this elevator and threatened you, I would defend you. That if you fell ill, I would tend to you, and if necessary, carry you to safety. I was telling you that even though I am a man and physically stronger than you, I will treat you with both respect and solicitude. But frankly, madam, it would have taken too much time to tell you all of that. So instead, I just tipped my hat. hundred years ago, the Titanic hit an iceberg and sank in the North Atlantic. Three-fourths of all the women survived. Three-fourths of all the men perished. You know why? It's because out of respect and honor for women, most of the men let the women and the children get on the lifeboat and chose to sacrifice their own life because they saw something honorable and, and respectful and unique in God's creation of women. Fast forward to last year. Remember this, a cruise ship, the, uh, the Costa Concordia, Italian ship, capsized. The men pushing women and children aside so they could get off. Even the captain of the ship was guilty. That's what happens when respect and honor for women is tossed away. Well, men and men of God... Respect and honor women, but the woman they respect and honor the most, if they're married, 
is their wife. Men of God love their wife as Christ loved the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. As for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? It was his greatest priority. Nothing was more important to him than the church. Men of God, how do they love their wives? Their wife is the greatest priority. No one or nothing is placed as more important than that relationship. Therefore, instead of looking for ways to spend more time with the guys, they find more time and ways to be together with their wife. Maybe you've heard it said, but I believe it's true, the greatest thing you can do for your children, guys, is love their mother or their stepmother, whatever the case may be. Had Christ loved the church, he loved it enough to die for her. Men of God love their wives so much that they are to live for her and, if the situation called for, have a willingness to die for her. Men of God love their wife and commit themselves to be faithful to her sexually in the bond of marriage. Heard about a woman who came in one day. Her husband was sitting on the lounge chair, lounge chair watching the news or reading the paper, and she's got an iron skillet in her hand. She walks over and just hits him across the head. No warning at all. He said, what, what, what was that all about? She takes his coat and pulls out a note out of his coat pocket, a piece of paper. Who is Sarah Lou? The husband said, honey, I can explain. I was talking to some of the guys the other day, and they told me about a horse, Sarah Lou, that I should maybe bet on next week. The wife apologized. She said, honey, I'm so sorry. I should, have, I should have known that you would tell me the truth. Thank you so much for being honest. A week later, she walks in the den. He's sitting there watching TV. This time she's got a bigger skillet in her hand. Knocks him upside the head. He says, honey, what in the world was that all about? She said, hey, your horse just called. (laughs) Women of God who are married to men of God don't have to worry about any of that. Well, then think about men of God in the relationship with children. Men of God protect, they provide, they care for their children. When you look at our nation today, some of the greatest problems we have socially are because way too many fathers are not living up to that responsibility. The United States is the leading nation in the world in fatherless homes. And if you don't think that's important, consider the fallout from that. It's reported that 63% of all youth suicides come from fatherless homes. 90% of homeless runaway children are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated by displaced anger are from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts 
are from fatherless homes. 85% of the young people incarcerated in our prisons are from fatherless homes. You see a pattern here? 75% of all adolescent patients in drug treatment facilities come from fatherless homes. Listen, most of the social ills that, that we as a nation experience today, a lot of them would go away within a matter of weeks if fathers, motivated by their love for God and their family, would be what they're supposed to be. That's what men of God do. But it's not just men, it's not just fatherless homes that's the problem. Sadly, some of the problem comes because the fathers are home. And yet they're not acting in ways and living their life in ways that honor God. They don't understand the importance of loving their children. They don't understand the importance of spending time with their children. They don't understand about the importance of sharing in the life of their kids and, and loving and supporting their wives. You know, I couldn't stand here today and tell you that when it comes to being a daddy, when it comes to spending time with my kids, when it, when it comes to loving them, when it comes to sharing in their life, uh, I cannot stand here and tell you that I'm a, a perfect example of that. I've done the best I could. But also, if I'm honest with myself, I know that I could have read more with the kids. I know I could have played ball more with the kids. I could have spent more time just laughing and cutting up with the kids. But here's what else I know. I know that the majority of the dads in this room We have to say the same thing. Because unfortunately, that's the way life works for a lot of us. We've got a lot of things to do, pulled in a lot of different directions, and sometimes the kids get what's left over. When it comes to, when it comes to, to loving our children and being a part of their life, that's an area that most of us will probably never bat a thousand. So do the best you can. And I'd say don't let a day pass without somehow letting your son, letting your daughter know that you love them. Every day find some way, not just to let them know that you love them, but that you're interested in their life their hurts, and their struggles. I came across a poem the other day written um, by an anonymous uh, person in a little book written by Truett Cathy. Uh, it's written by a father to his, uh, about his son, but it could just as well uh, be about a father and his relationship with his daughter. It's called A Successful Dad. Let me just read it with you. I may never be as clever as my father down the street, as my neighbor down the street. I may never be as wealthy as some other men I meet. I may never have the glory that some other men have had, but I've just got to be successful as that little fellow's dad. There are certain dreams I cherish that I'd like to see come true, 
There are things I would like to do. There are things I would like to accomplish before my earthly life is through. But the task I've set my heart on is to guide a little lad to make myself successful as that little fellow's dad. Oh, I may never come to glory. I may never gather gold. And when my business life is over, I may be considered a failure as told. But the task I've set my heart on is to guide a little lad, to make myself successful as that little fellow's dad. It's the one job that I dream of, the task I think of most. For if I fail that little fellow, I have nothing else to boast. For the wealth and fame I'd gather, all my fortune would be sad if I failed to be successful as that little fellow's dad. Men of God, or those who want to be men of God, one of our greatest privileges and responsibilities is to engage in the lives of the children to whom God has entrusted us. We're going to sing a closing hymn here in just a second called Rise Up, O Men of God. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take your hymnal and turn to that because I want to say something about the hymn before we sing it. Political correctness is all around us. It even creeps into our, our hymnal from time to time. I want you to look at this. this is, I found this very interesting. Uh, sometimes in, in efforts for our hymnal to be inclusive, uh, we use some inclusive language, and that's the case here. If you look at the, there's an asterisk. The editors of the hymnal decided that, you know, maybe it's not appropriate always to sing Rise Up, O Men of God. And so there's an asterisk that says that we can substitute the words Ye Saints. Okay? We don't have to sing it about men. That's all fine and good. But you know what? In this situation with this hymn, that, to do that, is to completely reverse or undo the reason this hymn was written. The author's name, William Merrill. One day he was reading an article about the absence of men in the church, and how the men in America were not giving, uh, exhibiting spiritual maturity and insight in their homes. And it troubled him. Men were just not being what men were supposed to be. And so he, he, he looked around and he realized there was no hymnody, no Christian music at all that had anything to do to challenge men. So he wrote a hymn. He wanted men to be men of God. He wanted men to step up to the plate and begin giving leadership in the church and in their home. He wanted men to, to be after God's heart and to love their wives as Christ loved the church and to protect and care for their children. And so he writes a hymn, and he starts it out by saying, Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings. Let that be your highest goal and desire. So you see, this hymn, we can sing Ye Saints if we want to, but the author wrote it for men, about men, because he knew what God knew. 
years and years earlier that men are the reason for a lot of the problems in this world. They can also be the means of the solutions to put those problems away.